This evening we turn to Second John, John's second epistle, and I will read the entirety of the of the epistle, Second John. <clears throat> Hear now God's word to us this evening. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as we have had heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works." Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are good to us and your goodness is manifested in a multitude of ways. And we thank you that you have given us your word. And we pray now that as we direct our attention to that word, that you will guide us by the power of your spirit and that you will enable us, O Lord God in heaven, to be more profitable servants of yours and be more equipped to honor you, O Lord Jesus, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Suppose, if you uh, will, that uh, you're getting ready to uh, leave your house on a cold winter morning while it's uh, still dark outside and you decide to flick on the television to see what the weather report is and the first thing you hear from the weather report is watch out for black ice and now this warning uh, automatically triggers certain things in our minds Uh, we click back Black ice, yes, we know what black ice is. Uh, Black ice, yes, I have to be careful. I know some things that I have to uh, be aware of as I'm driving. We don't self-consciously think about these, I don't think. They just sort of automatically pop into our heads because we lived here. Now, that may not be the case, for example, if you were raised in Brasilia. You may not know much about uh, black ice, Uh, but uh, nonetheless, most of us understand uh, what that is. And there's a sense in which the Apostle John does something similar in his second epistle. And he tells his audience in verse 8, watch out, uh, take heed to yourself, pay attention to yourself. And, and, and this should trigger a, a response in us. Uh, he's dealing with something that he contends is dangerous and something that could bring harm uh, to the audience uh, to whom he's addressed this letter. 
So in order to understand uh, John's warning, let's, uh, let's look at uh, some background kind of matters, which I, I think will help us to understand uh, what's going on here. Uh, first of all, we have to figure out to whom is this uh, letter addressed and who is it that actually writes the letter. So that's one thing that we need to, to pay attention to. What is the occasion, for example, that, uh, that uh, makes this letter come to be? Uh, the other thing as we look at this letter, we'll notice that John again is not very systematic. Uh, you remember that uh, when uh, we looked at 1 John, we encountered some of that uh, jumping around. As Luther said, you never know where he's going next uh, as he went through the letter. And, and so uh, uh, in order for us to... Uh, to uh, uh, make some sense out of this letter. Uh, I, I'd like for us to, to look at these background matters that I mentioned, then to uh, look at the warning, and then to look at the antidote. And I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do this in this way uh, in order that uh, uh, we can make some sense of what, what John has to say to us here. So let's look at some of these background, these setting kinds of things. So the first thing, the first question that we have to ask ourselves is, uh, who is this lady? I mean, uh, he writes this letter, and it's to, uh, as he says, uh, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Now, through the years, there have been lots of suggestions about who the elect lady is, and they've gone all the way from saying that, uh, you know, her name was really Electra uh, to uh, some kind of official title. Uh, most uh, modern commentaries have come to the conclusion that the letter is addressed to the church uh, and to a particular church, a church that uh, John is familiar with, he knows something about. And it's not odd, as we look at the scriptures, uh, for, uh, for the people of God to be, to be uh, described in, in this kind of way. You go back in the, uh, the Old Testament, for example, and Israel is portrayed as a woman, as a wife, as a bride, and as a daughter. So, so this, this kind of language should not uh, strike us as, as uh, uh, hard to understand. Uh, in my judgment, it's confirmed by the fact that John calls her the elect lady. Uh, this idea of election of being chosen is an apt way in which the scriptures also look at the church, look at the uh, way in which uh, the very word church uh, uh, reflects this idea of calling, of election uh, in, in the Greek uh, uh, language. And so we, we see this. Uh, that they, the church is, uh, it, it, it effectively belongs to the church. And, and John writes, and he says, to this elect lady, to the church and to her children. Now, uh, it seems to me what he's trying to get across to us, I'm writing to the church, and in particular, I'm writing to the people who are members of that church. That's, that's how he's, he's talking about this. So this is what he's trying to get across as he, he writes it to this particular church and to these uh, uh, members of the church especially. Now, now, when John writes to this church, it's a church that, that John knows something about. I take the position that John knows the people in this church, that he has been involved with the uh, uh, starting of churches in, in this area and probably has continued to, to have some connection with them in some way. And so he writes to them, and one of the first things that he does is that he, he reminds them of his affection for them. He talks about this, uh, uh, and we see this in the very first, uh, first uh, verse of this, uh, of this book. He tells them that he, he loves them in truth. It's, it's a strange way of talking about it. Uh, even in English, you'll note that there's no, 
no uh, a definite article there, and so we wonder about it. And uh, my take on it is that, that this is a, um, a, a kind of open uh, way of talking of things. It's, it's a kind of a, a Jewish way of doing things. You pile stuff on top of something else uh, idea. And so he's talking about truth. I truly do genuinely, honestly love you. But he's also trying to get across to them that, that this love that he has for them is channeled through something more. And he actually does go back and use a definite article when he's talking about love and other uh, or truth in other places. So he's talking about not only that this is a genuine affection that he has for them, but he's also telling them that this affection that he has for them comes guided to them because of the truth. And he's going to explicate this truth for them as he goes. Uh, through the letter as we go on. And so uh, he, he, he not only says that he loves them, but he also says uh, uh, that all those other people who have this kind of knowledge, this intimate connection, if you will, with the truth, are those who love them as well. So when John, John writes to this church, uh, he's, he's writing to them, and he's writing to them, and he's assuring them, first of all, of his affection for them, uh, but he's also assuring them uh, that other people also, uh, probably the people um, of the area where John happens to be at this time are the ones that, that love them. That's, that's my speculation about this. And I think it's important for us to see this because John, uh, as I say, gives a warning in this, in this letter. So when he talks about them, them, them being loved in the truth, uh, he may be alluding uh, to the words uh, that he recorded that Jesus spoke back in John chapter 14, verse 6. Uh, Jesus says there, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so in this case, as John talks to this, uh, writes to this audience, writes to this church, he's telling them that he loves them, and he loves them in the truth because uh, Jesus abides in them and they abide in Jesus. That's what it seems to me he's picking up on. Now, as I've been going along, I've been telling you that John is the author of this, but the book doesn't actually say that. Now, the letter doesn't actually say that. It says the elder. And uh, uh, this, this uh, word for elder, it can mean either an office or it can mean an old man. If I might give two illustrations that are here tonight, you could call me an old man and an elder, or if you didn't want to call me an old man and an elder, you could do that to Elder Tomer. Uh, we're both old men and we both happen to be elders. Now, in the ancient church, often the distinction wasn't very pronounced. Uh, uh, generally, uh, elders were old and they were also uh, officials. So, so, so these two things uh, kind of uh, go together here. But John, the, the author, identifies himself as, as the elder. And I take it that the prime reference is not just that he's an old man, but that he occupies an office. And the long-standing tradition is that this elder was uh, the Apostle John, and although he doesn't specifically identify himself as he uh, writes this letter, uh, he certainly fits in with all that we know, and the uh, uh, connection with the other epistles uh, uh, make, make this even more likely that this is John. I think it's important, though, that we may speculate, and people may write articles and even journal articles about who this elder really is, but everybody who got the letter the elect lady and all of her children, they knew exactly who he was. 
He said, I'm the elder, and they all knew who he was. Uh, he had that kind of a reputation, and that also seems to me uh, to attest to the fact that it belongs to John. Who, who better could have been uh, described in this area as the elder having that kind of a name? So we see the letter is addressed to a church. It, it uh, is uh, written by uh, the apostle John. Uh, he also gives them a greeting, and I'm not going to take much time with this greeting except to point out uh, the unique way in which John uh, offers to them grace, mercy, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth, in truth and love. We'll come back and pick up on that, but it is interesting that when John uh, addresses these people, he addresses them in a unique way, and the unique way in which he addresses them is uh, part of the burden of what he's going to try to get across to them in the letter, as a matter of fact. Part of the, a part of the, the, the a message of the letter has to do with the uh, truth of the incarnation, and uh, John is going to be arguing against those opponents uh, who don't believe in the truth of the incarnation. So that's what John tries to put there, and so he's actually, in a way, it seems to me, encouraging these people. He's saying, uh, uh, I greet you, and I greet you in this particular way because I love you, and this is the way in which we understand who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. Uh, he is the genuine incarnate son. Uh, I take it that this uh, letter is uh, written uh, <clears throat> to, to, uh, against the uh, opponents of John and the, and the congregation. And, uh, and it, it's the same as he addressed in 1 John. It's the same group. Uh, I, I take Serinthus as, uh, as a type of, of the people who uh, hold the same uh, kind of views that Serinthus did. And you may recall we talked about this, that Serinthus took the view that, that Jesus wasn't... Uh, wasn't born as the Son of God, but that the divine came upon Jesus at his baptism and that the vine left him before his, his, uh, his crucifixion. He talks about uh, uh, this in, in the first uh, epistle, and it seems to me he's uh, picking up on the same thing here. So, so this is an apostle writing to a church uh, dealing with matters with regard to the incarnation. Now, let's look first of all at, at his warning. I think it's helpful to get the warning in our minds. Uh, and he's, 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 he's warning them, not as the nasty old marm school teacher, remember, but as one who genuinely loves them. I think it's important for us to keep in mind. And in verse 8, he tells them pointedly there, watch out, look to yourself. Uh, this is a clear warning to them of the danger that those who deny the incarnation pose for them. Uh, John explains this, uh, one of the explains that part of the danger in that they may lose their full reward, he tells us there in verse 8. And he tells them that this is something that he has sought. He uses the uh, we there, and so it's something that he has sought and something that they have sought. I don't think John's talking about their salvation here in particular, which we know is a gift of God. My approach to this is to see what John is talking about here, what they're liable to lose, is that entire complex of, of true Christianity. John has worked to bring the gospel to these people in this area. He sought to encourage them to live in accordance with that truth, and that is the, the complete truth of the faith. That is a faith that is centered in Jesus Christ, and in particular, centered in Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son of God, and he's afraid that they will lose that. 
And if the people embrace the teaching of these heretics, they will be abandoning that truth about Christ and particular about his incarnation. Um, I, I don't think we need to argue about whether John is offering some sort of works righteousness. He's simply not addressing that matter here at all. He's warning those he loves in the truth to maintain their commitment to the truth that's found in, uh, in, in Jesus. And if they fail to do so, if they don't hang on to that, uh, uh, they will not be received into heaven by their risen incarnate Christ when he returns again. This is, this is the reward that he fears that they will lose. Now, he not only tells them what, what warns them uh, about what they can lose here, but he also describes, one of the reasons for the warning is because of the character of his opponents. And he uses two different ways of describing them. One is that they are deceivers, and the other is that they are the Antichrist. And he calls them deceivers because they go out as Christians teaching something that's not Christian. They teach something that's other than Christian. And so John says that they have gone out, their purpose is to deceive people and to tell them a lie. And uh, uh, the, the lie that they're telling in particular here is that they fail to acknowledge uh, Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. Um, it's interesting in this text, as opposed to some other text in, in John's writings, uh, that, that he uses a present tense here, and he talks about Jesus as, as he is. And it does seem to me John does that on purpose. Uh, he wants people not only to know that Jesus was incarnate, that, that he came as a real, honest, earnest person at his birth, but he also wants people to recognize that Jesus continues to be that way. And, and, and I think it's important, uh, I think it's important enough to take a little bit of time talking about verb tenses here, because I think that's something that we can easily forget. We forget that Jesus continues to be the incarnate Christ, and we can forget that the incarnate Christ, uh, the one who has a body, a real body, who's really a man and also really God, is that Jesus who's going to come back again. He's not some ethereal spirit floating around someplace that we know not. Jesus continues uh, to be a, a human. And so uh, I think it's important for us to, to see these kinds of things as, as we look at it. And the the deceivers don't confess this, and uh, uh, that's um, why they've gone out. They're sort of uh, uh, heretical missionaries, if you will. They're, they're evangelists for the untruth uh, in a sort of way, and so John is warning them about them. Uh, and, and to call somebody a deceiver, you know, if I come up to you and said, uh, don't listen to him, he's a deceiver, that ought to be enough to, uh, to, to turn you off. But John doesn't stop there. He says not only are these people deceivers, but he also says they're the Antichrist. Now John has already used this. For those of you who are around when we looked at the, at the first epistle of John, you may remember back there in chapter 2 that he talks about many Antichrists have gone out there. And we, we looked at what an Antichrist is. One of the things we have to first of all see, an Antichrist is somebody who's against Christ. He's an opponent of Christ. And so when John says deceivers, they're telling lies to you, but he also says they're Antichrist. They're those people who are opposed to Christ. They're opposed to what Christ said. They're opposed to what Christ did. That's, that's the character of these antichrists and many argue that not only are they to be seen as those who are opposed to Jesus and what he did and what he said but they're also offering some kind of substitutes that seems to be the character of these antichrists some substitute for the real Christ 
Now, this is exactly what uh, Serenthus did, and the Christ they portrayed is not the one that's described in the Gospels or by the uh, words of the apostles. They, 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 they portrayed a different Christ. He's a Christ that was, was by and large designed on the basis of contemporary kinds of philosophical sorts of things. And again, I think we have to at least pay attention to that, even though the particularity might not be there, but much of what we have portrayed for us as as Jesus is not a Jesus of the Bible, but it's a Jesus who is somehow designed, somehow uh, uh, described, not according to the scriptures, but according to contemporary forms of thought. And so what John is warning about is not something that is totally uh, outside of the bounds of what we uh, experience as well. Uh, John further describes these uh, deceivers and antichrists as those who forge ahead. Uh, the idea here, it seems to me, is it's sort of like somebody who's running in a race and doesn't follow the course for the race. And for those of you who are old men or old women or have very good memories, you may remember uh, stories about a lady named Rosie Ruiz. And Rosie Ruiz, uh, uh, one time, thought she won the, or portrayed as she won, uh, the Boston Marathon. The problem was, Rosie Ruiz started off on the Boston Marathon course, then got a subway, rode too close to the end of the course, and jumped out and ran a little bit and declared herself, uh, you know, the female winner. And in a sense, John is telling us that, that, that these deceivers and antichrists are the Rosie Ruiz of doctrine. You see, they don't follow the pattern. They don't follow the rule. They've come up with a different way, a new way. And that, that's, what, that's what he's talking about. They, 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 they carry out and teach their doctrine apart from the uh, things of Scripture. Now, now these, these deceivers, these antichrists, people, are people that John has already told us, that they were a part of the church at one time, but they've left the church. They have denied the truth of the faith, and they have, they have left. They have left because John and the others have tried to maintain the truth about Jesus as really the incarnate son of God. And back in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he tells us, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Now the consequence, uh, as John goes on to tell us here, is the consequence of these people is that they don't have either the Father or the Son. And John makes the argument here that uh, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. But he's also implying and telling us here that if you deny the Son, you can't have the Father. You see, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, uh, you, you, you can't say that you have some kind of relationship with the Father. John is being very clear about this, and his warning, then, is one that needs to be taken quite seriously as we look at it. Now, John goes on also, and he not only gives this warning about the danger embodied in the deceiving Antichrist, but he also gives them the antidote. And, and as I mentioned before, John doesn't do this in a very systematic kind of way. He, he uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, intersperses the antidote with uh, uh, all through the letter. And as I said, it's not very systematic. And if you've ever written a personal letter, it probably isn't a very systematic one 
either, you know. Most of us don't be, aren't able to look at our uh, personal letters and then say, oh, here's the outline. You know, it's sort of more consciousness, and that's the way in which John wrote. Uh, but uh, uh, sometimes he recognizes how they, they are already engaged in some practices that will be, uh, protect them against the Antichrist. And other times, John gives them uh, specific uh, uh, directions. And so um, I've, I've tried to uh, take this out of the letter form and put it more in a sermonic uh, form uh, for I think it's better to understand, but at least it was the one way in which I could understand it and try to, to put it down. And so we'll try to do this in, a, in an orderly kind of way. Now, throughout the letter, John shows how he desires that his uh, beloved children both embrace and that they uphold the truth. And we've already looked at this a little bit, but I want to go back in the first four verses there, and we just can't help but looking at those first four, when we look at those first four verses, to see the way in which the, the word truth just pops out at you. You know, you look through verses one through four, and bang, 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 truth is just there. It comes jumping out at us, it's there. And uh, I think it's fair to summarize uh, the, uh, the aspect of truth that John is trying to get across here is uh, the incarnation of Jesus. And if one does not hold to the truth that God sent his son, uh, his only son, to be born of a woman, uh, to live a perfect life, to die as a human upon the cross, uh, and then to be raised bodily from the dead, John is telling us that that one does not believe in the Christian religion. Uh, that's, that's the point he's trying to make here as he talks about, uh, about the truth. That's, that's what he's trying to get across. It, it's a very clear statement of doctrine. Now, as I tell you that, that, that people who don't hold to these doctrinal things aren't, aren't upholding the Christian faith, and some of you right away are going to say, well, the Christian faith isn't all about doctrine. You know, there's other parts of it too. Uh, well, John knows that. And as a matter of fact, after reading John, I know that as well. And as we look a little bit, he's going to tell us there's more to it. But the point that John is making, and the point I think that needs to be reiterated is that the doctrine itself is important. That the Christian religion is a religion that is based upon intellectual, cognitive, head kind of things uh, for us to understand. And uh, uh, to fail to embrace uh, this, this element, this cognitive element, uh, makes one either in company with the Antichrist or uh, one who is likely to fall victim to the deceivers. If you deny this element, you will not get the full reward of heaven. Uh, and, and note well that John rejoices to find that there are some people who have embraced this. He talks about some of these people and some of these children who are walking in the truth. Uh, they, they, have, they, have, they have embraced this truth. They, they've held on to it. They, they've, they've embraced the doctrinal kinds of aspects uh, of the Christian faith that are here. Now, it doesn't seem to me that we can draw the conclusion that, uh, uh, that then there are some others in the church that John is writing to who weren't walking in the truth. Uh, it does seem to me, uh, Westcott makes the argument that, uh, that John has probably met these people, and so it's not a word about them as those who are walking in the truth. John has met them. He knows that they are. Uh, some even speculate that he met them, and he talked with them, and that's why he's writing the letter, maybe even wrote the letter and sent it back with them uh, to the church where he's addressing this. And... Uh, um, and so we see this. Now, John, John warns them about, first of all, about the doctrinal kinds of things, but he also uh, tells them another antidote uh, that for, for, uh, to, to avoid falling prey to the, 
to the uh, deceivers and the Antichrist is that they might love. John's recognition of the absolute necessity of believing in the incarnation doesn't keep him from telling his audience and from telling us that there's also a necessary affectional component to true Christianity. Now, as we went through the first epistle, I think on more than one occasion I mentioned, John's back again telling you the same thing he told you. Love one another. I mean, it comes through a number of times uh, in the first uh, epistle. And uh, I have already mentioned to you that John's not reticent himself, and not only to tell these people that they ought to love one another, but to tell those people that he loves them. I mean, John starts the letter off by that, and I think we need to pay a little bit of attention to that. Uh, It's one thing for us to say, yes, Christianity is not uh, simply doctrinal kinds of things. It also has to have this love component uh, in it as well, uh, but also to take the John model here and be ready to say to people that as a brother or sister in Christ, I love you. Uh, You see, that, that, and uh, quite frankly, I've been in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church for a long, long time, and that doesn't characterize us. Uh, that's not the way in which people think. The OPC, that's the church where you go and they'll tell you that they love you in Jesus. But I do think we need to pay attention to what John is talking about here. Now, now in, in the fifth verse uh, of this uh, epistle, he actually uh, um, repeats something that's very similar to what he made the very same statement back in the, in the first epistle, back in chapter 2 of uh, of. Uh, First uh, John, in the seventh verse, we read, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment uh, that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is what you have heard. And this new old commandment is that they love one another. And John assumes that love for one another is being practiced in this uh, a church. And at the same time, it seems to me, he's not only saying you're doing that, but keep on doing it or do it some more uh, is the kind of idea that he has across. In verse 6, he goes further and explains his view of love. He tells them that they are to obey the command that God has given. And when we look at verses 5 and 6, it may lead some of us to be just a little bit confused, especially verse 6. And this is love that we walk according to the commandments. And this is the commandment, just as we have heard from the beginning. So you should walk in it. And what is he talking about here? Command, commandment. Let me try to explain that. The commandment is that they are to love one another and they are to reflect this love for one another in obeying the commandments that God gives them. And this is not like there are two different things. Uh, to to, to uh, love the brethren is also to obey God. It's to follow his commandments. Certainly we know that. Go back in Matthew 22 when we're told there by Jesus, you know, what is the second, Greek com- second uh, commandment? That second commandment is what? You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, that's there. But it's something that's built also into it that much of what the scriptures have to say, much of the way in which we obey God's commandments entail us uh, in loving our brothers. Look at the Ten Commandments if you will. You start off and you, you look at the uh, beginning there with, uh, you know, honor your parents, honor your father and your mother, uh, that, that, that from that commandment, all through the rest of the commandments, uh, right down to, uh, to not to covet, all of these commandments have to do with our relationships with others, and that's a way in which we actually exercise love. So, so when John tells us here uh, that, that we're to Uh, to love one another and to keep these commandments, he has these things in mind. Uh, Perhaps John in the first epistle summarizes what he wants uh, for the people so very clearly. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, we read, and this is his commandment that we believe
believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So John uh, tells them to hang on to the truth. He tells them to love one another. Now John comes and he gives them also a specific demand uh, of what they ought to do. And it not only encourages them to continue in their beliefs and practice uh, uh, love, uh, but he also tells them uh, that they are not to uh, receive uh, uh, these people into their homes. And we may be a little bit confused or maybe even a little bit put off by the stark manner in which John tells us uh, that we're to separate from others. He says there, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Uh, as I thought about putting this sermon together, I thought at least I have to say something uh, to a congregation that spent a whole number of uh, weeks uh, a little while back on how we can be a welcoming church, and in particular, how we can welcome the stranger. So let's at least uh, try to see if we can't put those two, uh, two things together. Um, uh, first of all, um, uh, uh, I think we have to recognize that, uh, that John is talking about the way in which the church functions and not a private home. Uh, he's not talking about how you, uh, in, in, uh, uh, you know, in, invite people into your home. In other words, if you have relatives who deny the incarnation or who don't believe it, or you have friends who deny the incarnation or who don't believe it, you could still bring them into your home. I don't think that's what John's talking about here. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the church. And it does seem to me he's not just talking about people coming into the church like we would welcome strangers into the church and being a welcoming church, but he's talking about things in a kind of official manner, in a way in which uh, 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 the church treats these people that when they come there, it's what he's trying to do is they come uh, to the church. And so the reception involves receiving those who, who left the church and they've gone out to, to propagate their deceptive brand of uh, Christianity. And this uh, reception is, is an official kind of thing, uh, as something like offering some sort of approval or or, or commendation. Uh, it may even include the opportunity to, to bring a word. Uh, it may parallel the things that we find back in Acts 13 where uh, Paul and Barnabas visited the uh, uh, synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. And in chapter 13 of Acts, verse 15, let me read that to you. After reading the the law, after reading from the law and for the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And Paul gets up and he preaches a very long sermon uh, after that. And so it does seem to me that, that this welcoming these people into the church really involves that, this kind of a greeting. It's a way in which you, you may give them opportunity to speak. And, and it's not just an opportunity to speak, it's also a kind of commendation of them. Uh, perhaps a, uh, an illustration of this is it in some uh, uh, churches within a Dutch tradition, they, they had the tradition of, the, of after the preacher got done with uh, uh, preaching his sermon, all the elders sat up on the front row. And when the preacher got done in these uh, 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 old reformed churches in the Netherlands, uh, uh, the preacher would come down and each one of the elders would get up and shake his hand. And why they did that, was they were saying to the congregation we approve we agree and that's the kind of thing that John it seems to me that John has in mind here as he tells them that they aren't supposed to do that they aren't supposed to welcome them in that way they aren't supposed to greet them in that way they're not supposed to give them a forum if you will or a commendation 
of what they're to do. Uh, and uh, uh, John goes on. He says, if you give him this kind of commendation, then uh, whoever greets him takes part in his uh, wicked works. Now, I don't think that runs contrary to, uh, to our idea of being a welcoming church. Certainly, we want to welcome those people in who don't understand the gospel. We also want to welcome those people in who don't, don't, don't really agree with the gospel. Uh, some of you are sitting here tonight, and you have come to embrace what we call the Reformed faith, but you embraced the Reformed faith because when you came through these doors, you didn't believe it. And you were taught it, and you came to embrace it. So we do want that. But we don't want to invite them in and say, go ahead, spout your deceptions or spout your anti-Christian views. And so there's a difference for us here. Now, all of this does seem to me is premised on the idea that the people will engage in some form of evaluation. All of what John uh, communicates uh, requires that kind of evaluation. And if we're going to follow the pattern that's set here, the evaluation, first of all, requires knowledge. Uh, in this case, we, know, we need to know the truth of Christianity, and we especially have to understand the importance of the incarnation, that Jesus was really a man. He was God who became man, and he lived and died and rose again. And uh, we also have to know something about those who come with another view, those who come with a view, for example, that's uh, uh, built not upon the scriptures, but upon uh, contemporary philosophical or uh, uh, thought uh, forms in our contemporary world. Um, and we also, when we make evaluations, we not only have to get the knowledge, we have to make judgments. And we have to make the judgment that some people are right and some people are wrong. And as soon as I get up here and say some people are right and some people are wrong, some of you get nervous. You know, this is not a society in which you can say that person's belief is wrong. Well, John says, in his society and in our society, you have to be ready not only to evaluate, but you have to be ready to say, that's a deceiver, that's an antichrist. Now, that's pretty much saying they're wrong. You see, so we have to, we have to be ready to do that kind of thing. Um, and and uh, uh, we also need to be clear about the basis on which our knowledge rests and also the basis on which we're making our judgments. And John is telling us here that, 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 that we have to have them based upon what the scriptures have to say. This is what John wants. He's taught these people these things. We saw that so very clearly in the first epistle. He wants them to see that. And so we make these judgments based upon whether these things that these people believe are really true to the scriptures, you see. But we also, I think, uh, um, should uh, ask what happens as a result of their teaching. We have to look at the consequences of, of their teaching. And in, in this case, we have to ask the question, if people teach that, do they love one another? You see, if uh, people uh, teach that, do they go about obeying the commandments of God? If people teach that, uh, do they come to appreciate the grace, mercy, and peace, uh, peace that comes from God uh, through the power of his spirit? We, we, need to, we need to see these things. Uh, 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 that, that's important. Uh, and, and my main desire is that you do engage in this evaluation. 
Uh, it's, it's, it's not enough for us just to sit around and hear the scriptures preached and not make judgments, judgments about those who are telling us other things in the world around us so that we're ready to say that is Christianity and that is not Christianity. These are people who honor the Lord Jesus Christ who came in flesh and died upon the cross to save me from my sins. We have to be ready to make those kinds of judgments. But we also have to be ready to make judgments based upon the way in which people behave, the way in which they respond to those things, you see. And, and I think we, 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 we not only have to make judgments about others, but we also have to make judgments about ourselves, you see. I believe the Reformed faith, but I don't care a hoot about anybody else. No. You're a deceiver. You're behaving in the spirit of the Antichrist. And it's John's point. He wants us to see both of those things, and that they, they love one another and they obey God's commandments. Now, we started out by talking about being warned about the black ice, and, uh, and most of you know <clears throat> what it is and how to be careful and approaching it, and you know that you have to be alert. And John uh, warns that there are deceivers about and uh, we have to ask ourselves, uh, do you know what they teach? Uh, do you know how to evaluate them? Uh, can you make judgments about the outcomes of their teachers? If you ignore the weather forecaster's uh, warning about black ice, you make yourself liable to a bad fall or an automobile accident. If you ignore John's warning, you make yourself liable to losing the blessings of heaven. John says, watch out. I say to you, watch out. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we <clears throat> thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which it comforts us and encourages us in our belief in you, O Lord Jesus. We thank you also for the way in which it confronts us and asks us whether our beliefs are backed up by our practices and we thank you for that confrontation. And we ask, O oh Lord God in heaven, that we will evaluate others and we will evaluate ourselves. But most of all, O oh Lord, we ask that we might learn to not only love one another, but in particular to love you, O oh Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.